0: Pamela Kuhn and the curtain is up on center stage the show about the arts and the artists behind their work what defines a writer well Annie Lamott in her book on writing in life entitled bird by bird says the following for some of us books are as important as almost anything else on earth what a miracle it is that out of these small rigid squares of paper unfolds world after world after world, worlds that sing to you, comfort and quiet or excite you. Mm. Books help us to understand who we are. Well, my guest today knows all too well about worlds and words that sing to us. Author Kate Manning has once again touched a nerve with her new book, Gilded Mountain, just released this month. It is the story of a feisty young woman, Sylvie Pelletier, who in 1907, when transplanted from Vermont to the wilds of the Colorado mountains, finds her personal voice and passion in her dedication to family and the rights of the oppressed. In this case, addressing the rights of those who worked the marble quarries during a time when the rights and safety of the workers were non-existent. Author Christina Baker-Klein says of Gilded Mountain, an epic story of love and perseverance, while Eric Larson adds, Gilded Mountain is brilliant. Kate Manning is the author of the critically acclaimed novels My Notorious Life and White Girl. She is a former documentary television producer and winner of two Emmy Awards. She has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times Book Review, Time, Glamour, and The Guardian, just to name a few. She has taught creative writing at Bard High School, early college in Manhattan, and lives with her family in New York City. Kate Manning, it is an honor and joy to have you back with me on Center
1: Stage. Welcome. Thank you, Pamela. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I uh, look forward to this conversation. Thanks.
0: Excellent, because I know you've been having many so far on this book. You have been a busy girl.
1: Well, it's been fun. You never know when you are uh, cooking up a novel over the course of this one took place over 10 years. You just never know if it will find its way in the world. And it seems like this one is. And I couldn't be happier about it. It's great. It's great.
0: Kate, tell me, is that what it's like for you? You know, you you were giving birth to this story, these people, these ideas. I mean, is that what it's like over a 10-year period when you start a novel? Is it that kind of process?
1: I think lots of writers will compare it to putting a child out into the world. You know, you watch it go off and hope that it makes its way. But yes, this novel actually um, was started maybe in 2011, 2012, and lots of life interruptions, things happen, um, and stopping and starting and changing things around. But it was uh, actually sold to the wonderful Scribner publishing team in the right before lockdown, and that was quite a, a different experience. And so the publication date kept getting pushed off and pushed ahead, and mm-hmm. and it's it's actually great that it's coming out now, and we can do things in person a little bit more, but. Uh, yes, I have said it's like being pregnant for three or four years, <laughs> <laughs> really, because there's so much buildup. When the book coming, When's the book coming out, when the coming out, um, and it's it's out now.
0: I was interested when I went to your book signing. It was just last evening in Darien, Connecticut, and someone asked that question. You know, what is it like when you finally hand that book over? And I was sitting there thinking my gosh, you know, you give birth to this precious child, and then you give it away. And you must be so fearful of rewrites of the criticism. Uh, Are you able to give it away that freely and not worry?
1: Well, no, I think there's two things that happen. Once an editor asked me, do you like being edited? And I said, well, do you like going to the dentist? I mean, (laughs) you you have to go to the dentist and you need an editor. And, And a lot of times you're just Uh, you really everyone needs an editor because particularly with when you sit with a project for that long and you read it so many times you really lose perspective and you have no idea uh, how someone will react you know you have I have a couple of readers that have been reading my pages for years and I read their pages and we swap back and forth but because we're friends you have to wonder that you know that they are not giving the fine-tuned attention that an actual editor will give a manuscript. And uh, my editor, Kara Watson at Scribner, and my literary agent, too, who's an editor, has we've all gone over this manuscript many, many times. And it's painstaking, but it's worth it. It's really worth it. So yes, but on, on the other hand, of course, sending it out, you, you just hope that the readers who've, who've vetted it are right and that it's working and that it's good. And um, it's very nerve wracking.
0: I can imagine. I can imagine. Like any performer, like myself, if I'm I'm singing and we have those imperfection moments, your mind still goes back to those and thinks, ah, I could have done it differently, you know. And I'm sure for any writer that also happens, but it's in black and white.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think there's a lot of common ground between performers like yourself and writers and and all members of the arts. I always think, though, that I think of this line that I've known, uh, had tacked to my bulletin board in college, a line from, I think, a Stanley Kunitz poem where he says, we learn as the thread plays out that we belong less to what flatters us than to what scars. And so, of course, your mind goes back to that moment where you forgot your line or you, you didn't hit the note or you you pick up your book and you, you look at the page and you go, oh, I wish I had changed that. I think I want to say good performers, good writers are perfectionists in that way because it's never quite what you what you want. It could always be better. Exactly
0: are you able to sleep at night with that? I mean, (laughs) yes, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's wonderful because I know a great many writers who can't and you know, it's just that thing, that thing that's within us, but that's fantastic.
1: Um, Okay. I'm a terrible sleeper, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I live with that idea. Sure.
0: But I think the beauty here too is that you have such a balanced existence with your your family, you know, mm-hmm. with your husband. I mean, you know, you're very much a mom and uh, this force in the creative world at the same time. And I I, I always love to see that kind of uh, Libran balance, I would call it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, long may that last for you.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my kids are grown up, and I I really oh I had a, a full time job before having kids and i always thought well while they take their naps i'll write my novels which wasn't a you know a really workable idea but i think uh, staying home to raise my kids and writing while they were in school really helped me establish a good routine and a discipline and a you know a time an idea that if you want to be serious about it you can't do everything you can't you know you really need to dedicate yourself to it as a serious pursuit
0: Right, right. No, I get it. I get it. So let's talk about that process if we can a little bit. I'm intrigued. You know, I I speak to a lot of filmmakers and they talk about, you know, their outlines and their storyboards. I saw you at your book signing last night using visual images to help us recreate an idea of the setting of Colorado, you know, back in the day. It was really quite vivid. So do you storyboard yourself? Are you inspired off a visual cue, so to speak?
1: Yes, I would say so. My mother is a wonderful painter, my grandmother was a painter, my uncle was a painter. There's a lot of artists in my family. So, yes, visual images really fuel my writing and in particularly in this case, I, you know, this is this is the slideshow that I hope to present at Greenwich Library coming up. Uh the, these images were it was sparked by an old the book was sparked by an old photograph that I found in my parents' attic. And it showed a a bunch of people, 100 people in sepia tones, standing in front of a mountain range in Marble, Colorado in 1915. And I asked my father about it, and he didn't know much about about it, but he thought one of the people in the picture was his grandfather, i.e. my great-grandfather. And he said, yeah, I think he had something to do with quarrying the marble for the Lincoln Memorial. And I oh, wow. taken aback, I did not know this history. And he really didn't know much about it at all. And wow. I just thought the picture was interesting and it was kind of cool to have a, a connection to that monument, which after all stands for binding up the wounds of a tattered, divided country. But I didn't think much about it for a long time. And then as my dad got older, I I said, oh, I'm going to find out more. And You know, all this time i had been picturing um, a quarry man, um, a guy with a pickaxe, but no, it turned out that my ancestor was actually the president of the company that supplied the stone for the Lincoln Memorial and the tomb of the unknowns. And um, so when I started to examine, uh, explore the history of this place and this time, I I actually went back uh, a decade before he landed there. And in the 1910s, um, there there were so many stories and pictures that really made my jaw drop to the floor. Pictures of women and children, but mostly workers, men, working in this vast white cave, giant blocks of marble, the size of grand pianos or shipping containers dangling in midair, um, shacks buried to the roof in snow, but people living in them, digging out like moles from their burrows at 9,000 feet of altitude um, and in sub-zero temperatures in the Colorado yeah. mountains. Yeah. And I just, I was so taken and so riveted with with a couple of these pictures where I was just searching them, looking where were the women? And I finally found sort of shadowy figure in the doorway of one of the cabins. And, and it really strikes me all the time, looking at history, that if you want to tell a woman's story, if you want to know what it was like, uh, for ordinary people, you have to read between the lines, and you have to look in the shadows. So I started to write about a quarry, a young woman in Quarrytown, who's dreaming of a of a different existence. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't that interested in my ancestor's story, really. It was, it was more like how, how did people live in these rugged conditions? I mean, you know, they were incredibly tough.
0: I can't imagine. So actually, but it was the historical element of your family that really lured you into this world.
1: Right. It it was. And I, um, I, you know, if I hadn't seen that, long picture, I wouldn't have known any of it. I, you know, never heard anything about a connection to Colorado at all. But then when I started researching, I I just kept finding these photographs and these old newspapers and archives and folksy stories and um, stories about strikes and labor unrest and immigrants and uh, the the way um, the West was settled and formed. And Um, saw many parallels between the kinds of things that we're going through today, you know. Uh, Mm, And so so it was very um, rich material.
0: Yeah, so let's look at Amazon now and and make a comparison. Or it's interesting, you know, what was old is now new. We Mm -hmm. come around, don't we?
1: Yes, I think so. And
0: who would have thought fascism would have a place in our country right now as well, which is uh, a little frightening.
1: Well, it's interesting to hear you use that word, and I think a lot of us have been uh reluctant to name it that, but I think it's um it's upon us, and we must look at it as if that's what's happening and in the for example, um you know, you talk about everything old is new again, and you when you look at the past, it helps you understand um the cycles of history and the pendulum swing but um to to study it is to say name it you know call it what it is say that there's a wealth gap say that billionaires um are uh, controlling 98% of the wealth and 98% of the people have to share 2% of it and so in this period 1907 1908 you see so many of the same things you see a financial crisis crash you see um, women don't have the vote. You see um, this newspaper war in this tiny town in which one newspaper is controlled by the company, and the company is writing all these reports and not, you know, and, and then this other pro-labor newspaper run by a very um fearless woman editor. Uh, who suffered very severe consequences for speaking out against the company, yes. and when I saw that story, I wanted to use part of it as as in the novel. Um, so she's a model for Sylvie um, in some ways. I named Sylvie after her, her name is Smith. So
0: I know, I love that. I love that. Sylvia Smith becomes you know our heroine, really. So walk us into this story, introduce the story to us for our listeners.
1: Um well if you had to do what you call an elevator pitch you'd have to mm-hmm. I could say a couple of ways i think it's um i think of it in some ways as the education of Sylvie Peltier she's the daughter of french canadian immigrants and this is her uh looking back at two years in a town that i named Moonstone Colorado it's a fictional town um and it's based on images and history of of actually marble and redstone, Colorado, and some other uh, episodes in Colorado history. Um, and so uh, she's she she begins her education in the rugged quarry town of of this uh, this place, and she finds herself she finds a way to get herself apprenticed to a a radical newspaper editor and yet she's very drawn as you all are to Mm -hmm. fine things and luxury and she sees the opulence of this manor house in town and wants to know what that's like and she gets herself um a job in the in the local castle and um meets all kinds of characters who are drawn there from Europe and kings and countesses and all kinds of people like that so another way I think of it is hey it's kind of like Downton Abbey set in the Rocky Mountains
0: <laughs> Here, here's our dynasty moment yeah
1: right. <laughs> I love that so she's You know, it's also kind of a subverted Cinderella story for for another thumbnail because she's confronted with the choice, you know, a a life of ease or 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 uh, uh, an adventure, and so she's got to decide between. She learns about right and wrong. Really, it's it's um, she uh, she begins to form her values and uh, and you know, I always think about. I've said this before, but I was thinking a lot about E.L. Doctorow's well-known quote, where he goes, he says that um, an historian will tell you what happened, but a novelist will tell you how it felt.
0: Yeah.
1: So that, you know, I hope that uh, the, the book wears its research lightly, but that by the end, you'll know not just what happened, but how it felt.
0: And that is the whole purpose of you giving us that emotional response into this world. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you right now, I was really drawn to all the characters. Mm -hmm. I I always feel Kate that if you are you into a good book, you know, you'll feel them close to your bosom and you Mm -hmm. want to go into their world and you want to feel for them and you want to have that empathy. And I certainly had that for several characters, but especially for Sylvie. You know, Mm -hmm. I felt this young girl who's trying to figure life out and she's stuck in the middle of nowhere, but yet she keeps her nose to the ground in a really interesting way. I mean, and you said, what was the phrase you used about her that she was,
1: she's sharp, sharp eyed, quick witted. Yeah. I think I said, she's a sharp eyed witness. Yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think she was hard to write Pam because yeah, because when you, if you're being honest, about what it was like for women and and still is to some degree. And we are all Mm -hmm. trained to be quiet and to not say what Mm -hmm. we're thinking in many ways. And we understand that to say a word like say fascism or to say abortion or to say um, I'm not being paid enough or Mm -hmm. I would like some childcare and, and to speak about it forcefully and knowledgeably and uh, is to risk being squelched and worse. Yes. And Sylvie, particularly in those days and and for uh, throughout time, understands that if she speaks and she could suffer grave consequences mm-hmm. and so could her family. Right. And exactly. so, you know, her mother has always trained her and the church has always trained her that complaints are the seeds of misery and you don't speak. So for me, it was a, a balance between her presenting a face of the good girl mm-hmm. while also having very subversive thoughts because she sees and has a growing awareness that, you know, like so many of us do, hey, it's not me, it's this systemic outside structural Thing that's that's holding me back and not letting me talk or be myself.
0: And you, I thought you did a great job of that. You know, in her, her internalization, you're constantly expressing. And through the book, she actually becomes more of owning her own truth. Mm-hmm. And to see that kind of maturity happen and this, this fantastic woman really implode, you know, physically in front of our eyes with within your words is wonderful. Um, I found her plucky and (laughs) I loved her good sense and she followed her intuition, you know, most of the time Mm -hmm. and, but you know, you're right. So often when we've heard a woman's story, it's been told by a man Mm -hmm. and now you're giving the voice here and Kate, you are a writer of great social conscience, as we, as we've read in your other two books, um, I find this really powerful coming from you. And there's a gentleness you have too when you unfold a story, even though it's been described as epic, this book, and I think it is, but also it's it's quite cruel. But one of the things I love about that is Sylvie sees the cruelty and wants to bring everyone's attention to it, even when it comes down to a a donkey being mistreated. (laughs) It's something really beautiful in the way you write. is there a is there a similarity or do you look to find a rhythm like akin to
1: musical phrases when you write? Oh, thank you for asking me that. Um and 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 coming from you, I know you're so you're a musician, so you would be tuned to that. I I look for a couple of things in a book and of course the story, but a narrative voice is made out of strong sentences, you know and rhythms and and you know really tunes you into a person's interior life First. so so yes of course i think about the rhythms of a of a sentence and i work on them for a long time if they if any of them seem fluid they're not they really are you know they come all out in a in a thousand word day if i'm lucky but then I go back and back and back and forth and chop and cut and move and chop. And and I really think that I read for the rhythm of a sentence and the musicality of a sentence. And I love to play with the English language because it is so rich and so full of, of idiomatic, funny expressions and great um, words that you know come from languages all over the world so it's great fun
0: That's fantastic. So tell me this do you, do you when you get into your characters do you go out and walk with them do you write letters to them do you crawl into their skin I mean to what I mean I've never written a novel I, to what level do writers go Kate
1: I don't know about others but if you're an actor as you are and I used to do a lot of acting and miss it um i do try to inhabit a character and i find myself sitting at my desk you know like closing my eyes or making (laughs) facial expression to try to feel that an emotion in my body the way an actor might and um, and also just to use the specific or or closely observed detail to carry emotion instead of saying, you know, he felt or she felt or I felt to make a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a piece of kitchen equipment or an action of chopping an onion, <laughs> carry the feeling instead of explaining away uh, uh interesting. over and over again. And, and-
0: Very interesting. So tell me this: you you talked about earlier in this interview about real life, you know, kind of uh, getting in the way sometimes of writing. How does that happen, Kate? I mean, are you able then to just put the book away for a while? Are you able to disengage? You know, during that ten-year period, I guess is my my main question here.
1: Well, I will say that during the ten-year period, um, we had a lot of family things going on my my dad died oh, my so mom's house had a horrible house fire and um so we helped her rebuild it and I was sort of the foreman of that job and um so there were lots of things like that plus there was the pandemic and uh, mm-hmm. other people made sourdough bread and learned Italian and <laughs> I wasn't one of them but <laughs> neither was I <laughs> yeah but um in some ways a, a book percolates along as you're doing the dishes or walking your dog or um, driving your kid to look at colleges and you it feels I don't know it's a tension that pulls at you you always want to be you feel bad unless you can get back to it and then when you do, you, I mean, for me, I look at it and I think, what was this about anyway? And sometimes if you just have a day or two, it's not even worth doing because you need a big chunk of time to, uh, to, to get to it. And I, I really admire writers who have a hard, fast religious rule. Do not bother me from six, seven in the morning until noon. I don't care what else is going on. I'm, I'm here. But I'm not one of those people. I just get pulled um, by family.
0: And how do your family handle it?
1: Yeah, they put up with me. <laughs> <laughs> they tolerate me.
0: <laughs> they know
1: when to give you your space. They do. Uh, yeah. Yes. They're they're very, very supportive, which is great.
0: We should, oh, we should mention, actually, that you will be in Greenwich at Greenwich Library on the 17th of November at 7 p.m. If anyone would love to come in and hear you speak. And I believe that is with your publisher or your editor.
1: Yes, uh, the editor. Watson. Yeah, my editor Kara Watson, who uh, I believe grew up in Greenwich, she's a local and um, has made good in publishing in New York City. And um, she and I had drive-by editorial meetings during the uh, the <laughs> pandemic, where she was she was uh, she was staying uh, near Benny Park, and uh-huh. and I would go meet her there, and we'd sit outside and talk about pages. <laughs> it was really and I just, love like, it. Driving up in the cars. and I would take my manuscript in a shopping bag and go, here, drop it off, <laughs> run, run six feet back, and she'd pick it up. And anyway. As you can hear,
0: Kate Manning is charming. We'll all be back with her next Tuesday for chapter two of this fascinating conversation. She is all about the wonder of words. Please go to katemanningauthor.com for more information about her writing and to centerstagewithpamelacoon.com for a gallery of my shows. Thank you again to my guest, Kate Manning. In the meantime, stay safe out there, everyone. This is Pamela Coon, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage.